Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 26. And today is the day that some of you have been waiting for. Because it is the last sermon in this sermon series that has taken us two years. (laughs) So literally the longest sermon series of my life. Um, Two years we've been in this sermon series called In His Steps where we have been tracing the life of Jesus Christ chronologically through the Gospels. We took Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and mashed them together in as best of chronological order as we could put it in. And so we will finish today in his steps. Next week, as Angela said, we'll have guest speaker. And then the week after that, August the 23rd, we will start the final steps. And this will be Christ's life from Palm Sunday to Resurrection Sunday. So that's only... Uh, A week, but it'll take us several weeks as we go through all of the events that took place in the life of Christ. My sincere hope is that through this sermon series, you feel like you have learned something, that God has drawn you closer, and you've seen the gospel stories in a way that is new to you. Um, And uh, we're not doing anything other than looking at what Scripture says and then digging in deep, but hopefully it has been a very helpful time and and a time where you have seen your own spiritual growth. You've learned something about the life of Christ or something about the Bible you didn't know before. And so uh, we're excited that that for our guest speaker next week and then in two weeks we'll uh, we'll start the final steps. Um, So today we are volume three, part 25, if you were keeping track of any of that. Um, This is part 25 of our volume three, in his steps. Uh, <clears throat> they say that certain smells can trigger old memories. For instance, if your mom used to make a big, make the family a big breakfast on Saturday with eggs and bacon and sausage and biscuits, you could almost smell that memory by me talking about it. <clears throat> If you walk into the house and someone has just baked fresh chocolate chip cookies, no, regardless of the kind of day you've had, that smell will put a smile on your face. <clears throat> because, hey, your day was terrible, but you've got cookies. And you can't frown with a chocolate chip cookie in your mouth. I challenge you this week. Try it. If you walk into the house and your teenager has forgotten to take out the trash, the whole house smells like diapers and garbage, that smell creates a less than ideal memory and mood for you. Perfumes, flowers, food, clothes, Axe body spray, they all evoke emotions from us because of the fragrance. It can be a very powerful thing. And today, we're talking about the fragrance of worship. This final story in the sermon series we're looking at today appears in Matthew, Mark, and John's Gospels. Matthew and Mark's accounts are very similar, but John gives us extra details that we'll bring up as we get there. So Matthew 26 is where we're looking, verses 6 through 13, and this is what it says in the ESV. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, 
A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now Matthew and Mark place this story right in the middle of Passion Week. Uh, right before Jesus is betrayed. But John puts it chronologically where it occurs, which is right before Passion Week begins. Jesus has left Jericho. All right, He's on his way to Jerusalem for the last time for Palm Sunday and crucifixion. <clears throat> so Jesus has left Jericho. He healed blind Bartimaeus. Then he meets Zacchaeus when he gets into New Jericho and uh, gives the teaching of the talents, the minas, and all this stuff. And so now he has left Jericho, and he's made it to Bethany. And he makes it to Bethany for the Sabbath, and he's there for that. And uh, so Jesus uh, is there. This is six days before the Passover occurs. So this is taking place on Saturday night. Now, Sabbath runs from Friday night to Saturday night. So... At Saturday night, when the Sabbath is over, they have what's called Havdalah, which is a, a, a festival, a, a special meal, a celebration that the Sabbath is over. <clears throat> and so they, they invite their friends over and they have this meal together and they celebrate it. And so these events occurred at a man named Simon the leper. Now, he clearly is an ex-leper. Uh, at this point, because if he was still a leper, nobody would have been able to come into his home. This, by we're inferring it here, but this has to be, this is most likely one of the men that Jesus has healed of leprosy. When Jesus tells the story of the ten lepers, that he told them to go and present themselves to the priest and be clean, only one of them came back and said, thank you. And this could very well be the one leper that came back and said, thank you. Um, but the disciples were there too. So Simon the leper, it's at his house, and he's invited a bunch of people, and so the disciples are there because they rarely left Jesus aside. Jesus has told him, I'm going to Jerusalem. He's repeatedly said, I'm going to die. I'm going to be betrayed and, and flogged and beaten and crucified, but I'll rise on the third day. And it's like the disciples, it's like in one ear and out the other. This is how we know they were teenagers, because Jesus has repeatedly said this, and they're not paying attention. It's in one ear and out the other. Sorry, teenager. Um, but it, the truth hurts. Uh, <clears throat> so John's account tells us that Lazarus, Mary, and Martha are there as well. And they're celebrating and they're feasting and they're enjoying each other's presence. And the story shifts from a party to a controversy very quickly. It shows us three distinct players in this story. A worshiper the worshipped, and the critic. 
At some point during the dinner, a woman came up to Jesus with an alabaster jar of expensive perfume. And it is estimated that a jar of imported perfume from India, which is nard, which one of the, one of the uh, Bible stories tells us that's what it was, it would have cost, something that size would have cost about a year's worth of wages. And do the math real quick, see what your annual income is, and think about buying a jar of perfume that costs that much. She took this perfume and she poured it out on the head of Jesus, letting it run down his hair. John's account said that she then took it and poured it out on the feet of Jesus and she wiped his feet with her hair. It was the servant's responsibility to wash and clean the feet of guests. But this woman took it as her personal responsibility. This was an expensive and extravagant act of worship. For the rest of the evening, the whole house smelled like the fragrance of her worship. Just for a moment, imagine yourself in that house. Imagine watching that woman perform such an extravagant and expensive act. The Bible says that in 1 Corinthians... The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 11 that a woman's hair is her glory. This would be such an intimate act of worship to wash someone's feet, to anoint a person's feet, and then to dry their feet with your hair. It demonstrated humility and intimacy, an almost scandalous level of intimacy. But it was such a tender moment between this woman who had been deeply ministered to by Jesus. But who was this woman? What had Jesus done to cause her to react in such a way? Well, in John's account, he tells us that the woman was Mary, the sister of Lazarus. As to why she did it, we go back in time. A couple sermons ago when we talked about Lazarus, he was sick. Jesus gets word that Lazarus was sick. And Jesus says, don't worry, the sickness won't end in death. And so Jesus lingers. He stays where he is. He's, He's a day's journey away from them and he stays. He doesn't come back to Bethany right away. Lazarus dies. So Jesus says to the disciples, let's go. Let's go back to Bethany. And word gets to Jesus before he gets to Bethany saying, Lazarus, your friend has died. What a, I mean, and we, we covered this. I'm not going to re-preach the sermon. It was a good one. You should go back and listen to it if you didn't. Lazarus, your friend has died. I mean, do you kind of get the implication there? You blew it, Jesus. You had a chance and you blew it. The reason it was significant, the reason Jesus delayed, and the reason that it was significant is because Jews believed that the Spirit stayed near the body for three days after a person died. But by the third day, after the third day, the Spirit left and either went to heaven or went to hell. So for three days, a miracle can happen. But after three days, that's it. The Spirit has left. 
There's no miracle possible. And Jesus lingered. Jesus stayed. Jesus waited. And when he gets to Bethany, it's the fourth day. Which is why Mary and Martha have accepted the finality of the death of their brother Lazarus, the breadwinner, their protector, their provider. And they said, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. Jesus' response, I am the resurrection and the life. And it's such a powerful story. But Jesus raised Lazarus on the fourth day. Something absolutely impossible in their belief system. He proved that there was absolutely nothing that he could not do. He wasn't bound by their superstitions. He wasn't bound by their biblical interpretations. He wasn't bound by their opinions. He brought Lazarus back from the dead, an indescribable gift to Mary and Martha, who were unmarried women. And they depended on Lazarus. They depended on their brother for provision and protection. So Mary, in a moment of incredible appreciation and thanksgiving, took the most precious thing she had to offer, and she offered it to the Lord. Maybe in that moment, Mary remembered the words of the prophet Isaiah. It's Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. What better news could Mary and Martha have received than to discover that their brother, who had been dead for four days, was alive again? And so she anointed the feet of Jesus. The good news that her brother was alive and well. The good news that she recognized Jesus was the Messiah. Nobody else but God had the power over death. The good news that Jesus reigns over sickness, sin, and death. The feet of Jesus that are caked with dust from the road were beautiful to Mary. She offered this worship. And the Messiah received it. And wouldn't you know, her worship was criticized. Her worship was criticized. Matthew and Mark wrote that the disciples were furious and they said to Jesus, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Why this waste? There will, be, there will always be people who don't worship like you do, who don't respond to God the way you do, who don't give as sacrificially as you do, and their response is often criticism. Why are you wasting your talents on church? You could take your musical talents and somewhere else and make a lot of money, join a band and make some money. Why are you wasting your time singing worship songs? You could spend your time doing something else that would yield a better return. Why are you wasting your money giving in the offering? You could put that into a retirement account and have more money for yourself. The truth of the matter is, whatever you offer to Christ in worship is never a waste. Whatever you offer to Christ in worship 
is never a waste. Whether it's your money, your time, your talents, your ambitions, or yourselves. It's never a waste when you offer it to God. We have missionaries who serve around the world, and they have offered their very lives, their goals, their hopes and dreams, their wants and their desires as worship to God. And I believe that there is no higher form of worship than that. And I guarantee you that Jesus Christ receives that as worship. John's Gospel tells us that the chief spokesperson for this angry rant was uh, against the woman was Judas. Judas. His criticism was not born out of true concern for the poor. His criticism was because his heart was impure. He was the church treasurer. He had been skimming money out of the bag for himself, and he wanted more to skim. He had been traveling with Jesus for two to three years or so, seeing the miracles, hearing the truth from Jesus' own mouth, and yet his heart was still far from God. He was a thief and a liar. Critics of worship often are jealous of our relationship with God. They don't have the intimacy with God that we have, so they criticize us. Or we don't worship the way they do, so they criticize us. We're too emotional, or we're not emotional enough, so they criticize us. The way I worship God is between me and God, and it's not between me and anybody else. And the way you worship God is between you and God and not anybody else. There's a period of time when I was at Southwestern, the Assemblies of God University in Waxahachie, and uh, I grew up Pentecostal. I grew up in the Assemblies of God churches. And so one Sunday I decided, you know, I'm going to go to a church of a different kind. So I visited a Lutheran church. And I experienced a whole different atmosphere, a whole different worship style. And I personally was just struck by the awe and reverence that they had. Sometimes churches I had been to felt like it was a three-ring circus. We had people falling down and laughing and shaking, and I was like, you know, I'm Pentecostal, but sometimes I was a little concerned. And, and I saw there that they had an awe and a respect and a reverence. I, I felt like a lot of our churches didn't have. And I, told, I went back to school, and they said, oh, where'd you go to church today? And I said, oh, Faith Lutheran. And they Lutheran? You fall off the wagon, Frazier? You stop being Pentecostal? And I'm like, what? There's nothing wrong with the way they worship. That's their faith tradition. And they, they enjoyed and they appreciated it. And we could learn something from that and they could learn something from us. And so the way they worship, they don't have to justify their mode of worship, their method of worship any more than we have to justify ours. The way we worship is between us and the Lord. And when God asks you to offer something as a sacrifice in worship, whether that's money or whether that's a possession or time or anything else, don't let anybody's critical opinions prevent you from obedience to God. There will always be people who don't understand why you're doing what you're doing. But thank God you don't have to clear it with anybody before you obey. Uh, well, your spouse, if you're married. But if y'all are in tune... 
and you say, I feel like the Lord has told me we need to give this away, we need to do this, we need to whatever, I believe that the Holy Spirit can speak to both of you because the two have become one, and God will speak to you both and work with you, and he's got different timetables because one of you may be more hard-headed than the other. One of you may be more prone to obedience than the other, and he's got to work a little bit longer on one than he does on the other. I'm not making any judgments on your marriage or your personality, but sometimes that does happen. Or sometimes he tells you both at the same time, and you look at each other and you say it, and it's, you know, you finish each other's sentences. In Matthew and Mark's accounts, Jesus replied to this criticism of Mary's worship by telling them to zip it. He told them to be quiet, leave her alone. And he said, for she has done a beautiful thing to me. She has done a precious and admirable thing. When your heart is surrendered to Jesus, your acts of worship are precious and beautiful things. Jesus receives it. What's also interesting in this story is that Jesus called out the critics and their criticism for being completely invalid. He said, you always have the poor, but you don't always have me. Jesus was not saying, oh, good, now we can ignore all the poor people around us. Appreciate that. No, he was revealing that their motives were incorrect, impure. Their motives, their, their motives of criticism were disingenuous. Judas didn't really care about the poor. He only cared about himself. Critics are the same way. They don't care about you and your obedience to God. They just care about themselves. They care about how your worship and how your obedience affects them. But what did Judas do immediately after this event? He went into Jerusalem secretly to find out what reward he would get if he betrayed Jesus. For Judas, it was all about money. His heart had strayed so far from the heart of Christ. And this rebuke by Jesus set the events of his betrayal in motion. People don't like being rebuked. If you doubt that, log into Facebook and just tell one random person you're wrong. Whether they are or not, it doesn't matter because clearly we live in a day and age where facts aren't that important. Opinions are more important than facts. And if you just doubt that, then just say you're wrong and just see what happens. The firestorm that the internet will create. Because people don't like to be rebuked, even in love. Even when it's done in love, people make up their minds that they're right and that you're wrong, and there's nothing that you could ever do or say or prove otherwise. So when you confront their error, if they're not humble, if they're not willing to receive correction, they will rebel. I think it was Josh McDowell. It was a fantastic quote, and it's great for leadership. It's great for parenting, but especially at your work, rebuke without relationship leads to rebellion. I never forgot that. Because I got in positions of leadership where I had to rebuke somebody or I had to correct somebody and I didn't have a relationship with them. And when you do that, it typically leads to their rebellion. I don't have to listen to you. I don't have to do what you say. But when you have a relationship with that person, they respect what you have to say. They see that you want them, you're trying to help them grow as a person. 
and they're more likely to receive the correction. Never forget, since we're talking about worship, never forget, the first murder was committed over different styles of worship. Abel and Cain both offered worship to God. The boys offered a first fruits offering to God. It wouldn't have been a sin offering because Adam, their father, would have offered that for the family. So they were offering the first fruits of their flocks and their crops. Abel offered a lamb. Cain offered food from his fields. It wasn't about what they gave. It was the position of their heart that was important. And when they were judged, when God saw their gifts, he accepted, Cain, he, excuse me, he accepted Abel's offering because his heart was right, and he rejected Cain's offering because Cain's heart wasn't right. So because of that, Cain got jealous. Cain got so angry that he got so angry about worship that it drove him mad. And in 1 John 3.12, we read the story, of course you can read it in Genesis, but 1 John 3.12 it tells us that Cain slew Abel. That word slew is not really a word we use that often, but it's King James Version. Cain slew Abel, and, and that word slew means to slit one's throat. So you get the picture that Cain had watched Abel slit the throat of the lamb to make it a sacrifice to God. And so Cain slit the throat of his brother to make Abel the very first human sacrifice. All that jealousy, all that anger, hatred, and bitterness was over worship. One's person worship was accepted, one's was not, and jealousy and hatred ensued. How you worship, your surrendered heart, may irritate others that do not have the same kind of relationship that you have with God. And they may incite, they may be incited to attack you. Don't let them deter, don't let them distract you. Your worship is beautiful to Jesus. You may have a horrible singing voice. You may not be able to play an instrument to save your life. But that's okay, because when you offer it with the right heart, Jesus receives it and says it's beautiful. Nobody else around you may say it's beautiful, but Jesus does. Your surrendered heart is beautiful to Jesus. Your extravagant worship is accepted by him. Jesus is not looking for a critical church. He is not looking for a self-righteous church. He is not looking for a divisive or a self-help church. He's looking for a humble church, a surrendered church, and a worshiping church. And if the worst thing that somebody can say about me or you is that our worship is too extravagant for them, it's too sacrificial, we're too surrendered to God, then we'll take that as a compliment. We'll take it. Worship team, come on up. Would you please stand with me this morning? Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 15, it says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. 
For we are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. When we have worshiping hearts, when we have surrendered lives, our lives are an aroma to God. We are the aroma of Christ to God, is what Paul says. What, what an amazing thought. What a tremendous responsibility. Does our worship, does our life smell like life? Does it smell like freedom? If we're the aroma of Christ, do we smell like grace and mercy and forgiveness and repentance? Or do we stink like self-centeredness, criticism, jealousy, and greed? I'm not a perfect person. And because of that, I'm not a perfect pastor. I'm not a perfect husband. I'm not a perfect father. I'm not a perfect friend. I, like all of you, live in this imperfect body with imperfect impulses and imperfect thoughts. But my heart, my earnest desire is for my life to be an aroma of Christ to the Father. That when He looks at me, He sees Christ in me. I strive to live my life with the fragrance of worship. And the path that God has me on may be too extreme for some and not extreme enough for others. But it's not my concern to be approved by anyone but the Father. If I've been faithful, if I've been obedient to Him, that's the only thing any of us should ever want. Worship team is going to lead us in a final song. And while they do, would you just take these final moments to take on a position of surrender to God? Would you tell him honestly, God, there's nothing off limits to you. There's nothing that I would not give. There's nothing that I would, with, that I would withhold from you. That you want to have the heart of a humble servant. Would you ask the Father to help you live your life in such a way that you are the aroma of Christ to God? That you are a fragrance of worship. That we are a fragrance to those around us. That when people are near us, they sense something is different. We don't smell like death. We don't smell like fear. We don't smell like greed and self-centeredness and hatred. We smell like love and grace and mercy and repentance. We smell like Christ because we are the aroma of Christ to God. Would you just take these moments as they lead us in a final song? Let the Holy Spirit begin to speak to you. Just be honest and ask, Lord, is there anything in my life? Is there any area of my life that is not wholly surrendered to you? Is there anything that I've withheld? Is there anything I've held back from you? And you've, you've spoken to me about it and I've, I've pushed you aside and I've rejected it and I didn't because I didn't want to hear it. I believe that the Holy Spirit is speaking someone here today that he's speaking to you and he's going to reveal an area of your life 
where you have not been obedient, where you have not surrendered to him. And when he does, brothers and sisters, don't be foolish. He's revealing that to you because he wants you to grow. He's revealing it to you because little is much when it's in his hands. And the little that you can accomplish with your life will be exponentially increased when you allow yourself to be put in his hands. When you surrender your will to his, your time, your money, your talents, your abilities, your dreams, your hopes, your retirement. When you surrender it all to him, he'll do more through you than you could ever dream of. But it takes you saying, God, I surrender. So let the Holy Spirit begin to deal with you for these few moments this morning.